Before we get started, I'd like to say thank you to CoinKite for supporting this show. To me, CoinKite seems much more like a bunch of Bitcoin geeks making cool shit than a formal company. This, however, doesn't mean they don't take their work seriously. Quite on the contrary, as these guys take more of an adversarial mindset to the products they develop than any other company that I'm aware of in the Bitcoin space. Their most popular product is the cold card hardware wallet, which has become an extremely popular method amongst hardcore Bitcoiners for self-custodying their Bitcoin. The most recent version of this product, the MK4, is out now with several new features designed to increase ease of use, introduce even more security features for multiple attack vectors, and make the degree of security which cold card offers more robust than ever. Thankfully, these guys also like to have some fun and tinker with some not-so-serious products, which has resulted in a personal favorite of mine, the Block Clock Mini. Whether you've begun orienting your life around block time, need to check an open dime balance, want to keep an eye on the Bitcoin exchange rate, or just get a kick out of watching Moscow time slowly trend towards zero, the Block Clock Mini has become a favored piece of Bitcoin paraphernalia and an increasingly less subtle way of signaling that you've become fully orange-pilled. To learn more about all their awesome products and stay up to date on what they're working on, visit coinkite.com. So I was, you know, right before we started this, I was thinking how long it was, it has been since we last spoke. And we, we obviously spoke in person at uh, the 2021 conference. Correct. You weren't at, were you at 2022? I was not. No. Uh, but prior to that, I think, I think we did a podcast in 2019 with you and Ben and I. Yeah. Does that sound about so. right? Yeah. I, I know that I've talked to you online like a couple of times, but I don't, I don't remember if they were all on your show or what all the contexts were, but. It's been a while. Time flies. It has, man. So how are things? Good, dude. I'm, I'm doing a heck of a lot better now than I have been in a long, long time. So that's um, awesome to hear. Really in why, a great place. Why is that? I mean, I'm sure it's part of a longer story, but you know, what's, what's so good. Well, it's just like the season of things, you know, it's like I'm home, I'm, I'm with my family, I have two wonderful little kids, I have a, a wife I love, um, you know, I, I'm working uh, full time, like on a coding project in Bitcoin. Um, I have, like time to, to be home and like work out and connect with nature and be with my family and just like do all the things that make life wonderful, you know? <laughs> yeah, living the, the Bitcoin dream lifestyle, basically working on Bitcoin sure. and spending time in nature and hanging out with the family. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't Sounds have amazing. it any other way, really. Yeah. I think my impression is that many of us are starting to at least attempt to orchestrate a lifestyle like that, you know, where you're, you're, you work on your own time on something that you find extremely meaningful. You make and have time for family and time in nature and, you know, working out and eating good food and friends and stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's pretty simple, right? This is what, just one of the things that makes me, <clears throat> I, I, I've been thinking a lot lately about, you know, what is progress and how is, you know, how do we define progress and how does our definition or impression of progress dictate how us as individuals, you know, orient our lives and how society emergently, you know, what's, what culture, different cultures, come to value and what they end up striving towards, et cetera. And I wonder, you know, in a, in a Bitcoin denominated world, as more and more people kind of get their perspective upgraded in the way that so many of us have and their value systems reoriented and desire a life that broadly speaking, and there's a lot of nuance here, but broadly speaking has a, 
lower time preference, let's say, and, and places a greater emphasis on the things that are kind of transcendent or not like don't have a market value, let's say, at, like many of the things that you just described and probably have a less interest in material wealth, you know, in the, what we might call like fiat forms of wealth. And if that trend were to continue, or if we're to, if that mindset were to be adopted on mass, how would that reorient how collectively as a species, almost what we're striving, like what we deem to how we would define progress and what we, we would be striving towards and, and our notions of the future then, you know, cause we project out our, our notions of the future based on the way things are today. And we look at the trends and we look at the different technologies and we kind of extrapolate to the extent that we want to, some people don't give a shit about the future. Um, and I just, there seems to be pretty profound changes happening on an individual level as a result of this thing. And I wonder, well, it's fun to speculate how that might manifest into a, a different future than maybe we're all brought up to expect. Yeah. I think one of the things that's really interesting about Bitcoin kind of on that note, um, you know, cause it is like at the end of the day, it's, it's really just a financial tool, but it enables uh, individuals to take back so much control and agency over their life and situation that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Like it, it free, like, well, for the one thing, it frees up so much mental capacity, right? Because you're, yeah. you're just concerning yourself with so much of the, so much less of the fiat minutia. Um, but I think, the, the big, one of the big things for me is just looking at where I'm at in life right now and like where I've been through most of my life in the past. And now is when I have the greatest amount of agency and control um, over myself and over like my, my position in life and over like what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And that is really where a lot of like my, my inner peace comes from. Um, well, I mean, I, I, primarily, I think my inner peace comes from God, but like situationally, like, I think it, it comes from a lot of like what I'm able to control kind of on a day-to-day -day basis. Cause the less control you have over, um, all the little things that you do day-to-day, -day, like it, that really wears a person down, I think mm -hmm. when, when they don't have that agency. Uh, and, and I think it's also squandered too, in a lot of cases, uh, because of the, the way fiat incentives twist what we value, um, our value hierarchies from, from top all the way to the bottom. Um, it, it distorts like how we value our time. And, and even in cases where we might have control over certain variables, like we might have agency over the small things, um, we squander that agency because we don't value that agency. If that makes sense. Yeah. It makes total sense. You know, and it's, as you say, Bitcoin seems to be delivering a, a form of freedom, you know, that is, is, practically or essentially unprecedented. And I think the really fascinating process that seems to be unfolding is many people are starting to realize that when you have that degree of, of freedom and how it allows for, uh, well, how it, it delivers to you a, a degree of agency that perhaps you'd never experienced before and, and how that allows for all the various forms of pressure or anxiety or distortion or distraction that was previously a part of your life to be dramatically dialed down. And you're put in a position more where you get to dictate your own life, right? Where you have more agency and the really interesting questions that I've, you know, been ex exploring perhaps ad nauseum to, for some people on this podcast is, you know, when you have that, you're placed in a position that perhaps you'd never been placed in before. And we certainly weren't brought up to really contend with, which is when you have that degree of freedom, 
what should you direct your efforts towards? What should you direct your energy and your time towards when you, when you can basically choose for yourself? And, and it's, it's inevitably the case that, you know, I, ideas around, uh, abs, you know, value and morality and, and all of these things are wrapped up in that because those are the very things that actually end up orienting you or dictating the behaviors that you engage in. And this is why I think part of the, the dialogue in this space is, is so much forming around those sorts of ideas, whether it be in the philosophical or the theological realms, because those are kind of the realms that attempt to deliver clarity on, on those paramount questions when, you, when you're given the agency to, to, to confront those decisions and to make those decisions. And it's, a, it's very uh, gratifying or invigorating intellectual you know, uh, circumstance that's prevailing as a result of that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think like Bitcoin, the thing about Bitcoin too, is that like, you don't, it's not like you buy Bitcoin and then you wake up tomorrow and now you have agency. You know what I mean? Is that it, what it kind of does is rewire um, almost like it helps you chart a course a little bit better and like steer towards um, paths that afford you that will afford you more agency in the future. Like if you, if you're willing to think past this weekend, right. Cause I think a lot of us live in the here and now, because we're just trying to make it to Saturday or we're just trying to make it to next month, or we're just trying to make it to next year. Um, I know I lived a lot of my life like that in the past, like really just kind of wishing the present moment away, um, desperate to get somewhere other than where I was currently. Um, and, and I think like one of the things that Bitcoin has really helped me rewire about myself is just in the agency that I have in, in steering myself towards the direction that I want to go. Um, and then not getting to the point where I'm becoming kind of just complacent in the present and wishing away the present moment, um, to get to some nondescript abstract point in the future when quote unquote, things will be better. Um, and, but maybe I was onto something, right? Because it's better today than it ever was in the past. So maybe there is something to be said for, um, like going through those seasons of tribulation and, and kind of suffering through that, that feeling of helplessness and that, um, that like we, you and I talked a lot about ego death when we talked at the Bitcoin conference. And that's something that like, I think a lot about because, uh, it's had such a huge impact on my ability to, um, I feel like have the agency to better steer myself into a place where I want to be in the future. Uh, Cause I had to kill that little child inside myself so many times and every now and then he crops up and I have to kill him again. Yeah, no, I mean, I totally agree. And, and, you know, the, the, the ego is a very useful and necessary thing, right? It's kind of like the individual individuated self and it helps you maneuver through the world. And, you know, it's not that like, it's, uh, exclusively a, a detrimental vestige or anything like that, but obviously it runs amok. And I think it, it, it can lead many of us astray and to the extent to which we can, you know, more appreciate its function and how it works and how best to engage in it. Then I think we're, we are able to move its distorting effects out of the way so that we can see things more clearly and then pursue the things that we deem to be of the greatest meaning in the most sincere or genuine way and not be thrown off course by our, our insecurities or our desire for immediate gratification or, you know, desire all those other liked. things. Yeah. All that stuff, you know, cause all that stuff distracts your attention away from engaging fully in the object or, uh, 
uh, or like the, the, the object of meaning or whatever the project or end goal or ambition might be around that. And you start thinking about things like, you know, the accolades or what are people going to think of me or, you know, how much money I'm going to make from it. And it's, you know, maybe it's inevitable that those are going to be there. And, and that's part of continuing to hone yourself is being able to constantly confront those, you know, those forces and overcome them. And that's the process of refining yourself as a person toward and using noble ambitions, let's say these, these, these things of greatest meaning that you want to contribute or devote your time to in, in that, in service of refining yourself, you know? And so you, you, you get a, a double whammy, right? Over the course of time, you get to refine yourself in relation to the thing that you're most trying to build, which, so at the end of the road, or as time goes on, you're getting your own refinement and you're transmuting your effort into something, hopefully of value to you and potentially others. And, you know, that, that seems to be kind of the main game, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I think too, uh, fiat incentives really lend themselves well to, um, servicing one's ego. I mean, I, I think about a lot of the, oh, yeah. the fiat incentives that I used to chase or that I've seen other people in life chase. And even just like, like that, having that ego that, that, desperately desires not just for other people to like you but for other people to see you the way that you want them to mm-hmm. um not just the way that you are like i think we spend a lot of time or i know i've spent a lot of time in my life in the past fighting to make other people see me as who i wanted to be not who i was um so i you know you put up all of these facades and barriers between yourself and people um because you're you're terrified that they'll find out that you're not who you pretend to be, that you're mm-hmm. actually just this sniveling, whiny, little insecure, insufferable, yeah. In, yeah, insecure little bitch. Right. <laughs> and, and, and they will hate you when they figure that out, but like everybody's the same. Right. But that's why people buy the, have to buy the newest car and the latest iPhone and wear those new $600 pair of shoes and go on all these fancy vacations that they post about on their Instagram or whatever. Like they're not doing that for themselves. They're doing that for everybody else in, in most cases, right? There's probably yeah. some exceptions. No, I, I totally agree. And this is, this is kind of the interesting aspect of, I mean, of course, Bitcoin is not the only force or catalyst for these types of changes. There are many others, but it seems to be the case that at least Bitcoin is, is maybe accelerating this or bringing or making it more, you know, making it more viral in a certain sense, but you know, this is, this seems to be prevailing a lot. And that's why I, you know, said at the beginning, like how does, when one, when one starts to appreciate and recognize that, and as a result stops engaging in the various forms of gratifying or, you know, the ego or assuaging the associated insecurity, all, you know, the things you just mentioned and many more, uh, and they start orienting themselves and valuing other things, you know, how does, how does their life look and how do they as a quote unquote consumer end up looking? I mean, I, I'll speak for myself and not all Bitcoiners, but I'm not a, you know, I'm a, I'm not a great consumer, you know, I'm not a great, like part of the economy. I have very few possessions. And part of the reason for that one is I've been mobile for the last several years and it's just easier to not have a lot of things. But, um, but the other one is the things I value are not material, 
you know, beyond the, the uh, like safe and secure and to a certain degree, comfortable and beautiful. Like I, I appreciate beautiful environments and I think it's, um, it's definitely preferable for me to be in beautiful environments because they're inspiring and uh, they're conducive to forming unique and positive relationships and all that kind of stuff. But the things that I value are many of the things we already mentioned, time with family, time with friends, good food, time in nature, feeling strong, you know, testing my intellect, testing my, my physical self. Like those are the things that I value more than anything. You know, and I, I think it's pretty common in the Bitcoin space that like very few people are here for the Lambos. You know, that's a that's a meme that people that non-Bitcoiners think or attribute to, you know, part of the motivation for people in this space. But it's seeming to me and again, I self-select for all this stuff. So I have to be aware of that. But um, that, you know, valuation, things that we value are are, are being reoriented towards um, the like immaterial things. And it certainly seems to be the case that Bitcoin is accelerating that. Do you think that Bitcoin uh, is doing the reorienting or so? uh, Yeah. So I'll highlight what you said about like how the Lambo dream chasers, like they do exist. They are out there. So like, I I do think, yeah, you're you're self-selecting a little bit because certainly, but certainly like I've met a lot of really special people in Bitcoin. I think I feel, I feel like personally, Mm -hmm. Um, do you think that the it's Bitcoin changing those people or do you think that Bitcoin um, like kind of on, on the, on the tangent of the ego death thing? And and do you think it's, it's more likely to attract people who are already on that path, not the Lambo chasers, but the people who are, um, they really seem actualized in ways that, that most people are not. Do you think that Bitcoin is attracting those people or do you think it's creating those people or is it both? I mean, I, the answer has to be both, right? And it's impossible to know what the breakdown is. And it's probably for most people, a little bit of both. I mean, I know it was the case for me, like Bitcoin appealed very much to my underlying political and even, you know, other other forms of philosophy, right? I was very much a critic of the state and the monetary system and all this kind of stuff. So it was right up my alley. But I, you know, I do also think that the degree of freedom that we referenced before and how it allows you to just like it allows you to remove so much noise and focus on signal and what that signal is comprised of. And then, you know, it, it, it's like a, a spiritual implement in a sense, like your relationship to it just it creates a feedback loop where you're, maybe you accelerate the degree to which you understand and learn about yourself and you're able to get more clarity on what you what is most valuable about yourself and what is most valuable or meaningful out in the world that you want to that you want to contribute to or be a part of in some way and so, you know and that seems to be very much a not just a self selection thing but bitcoin somehow working its uh, working its magic on people and um, so who knows? But I, I think the answer is probably both. But I mean, what was it for you? I mean, what's your experience? I think it, well, I know for me, it was definitely both. There was no, um, I found Bitcoin and then magically woke up the next day, a toxic maximalist Austrian, you know, <laughs> anarcho-capitalist or whatever. But um, it was definitely like a lifelong journey, I think for me. And, and Bitcoin just kind of came along at the exactly right time that it should have for me. Um, but, and, but I also like, 
I I've gone through ego death so many times in my life. Like I certainly like three, uh, three or four, like very distinct times in my life that I can remember. And I tend to see like a lot of the people who either come into Bitcoin for the wrong reasons or are ardently opposed to the idea, either because they can't understand it or they refuse to understand it are the ones who put their ego front and center 100%. in all of their decision-making. Like they're the, their their hangups are not so much anything to do with bitcoin as it is they're afraid of what other people are going to think about them they're afraid of having conviction in anything they're afraid of embracing anything other than apathy well certainly with my generation i know that that's the case um and i i think it's that's less so as you get older but like certainly when you're younger um there's like this element of embracing apathy because um it's not cool to like, like things. It's not cool to, to care about. It's not cool to have opinions on things. It's just, you're just kind of floating through life and you're supposed to just say, Oh yeah, whatever. That's dumb. Or, Oh, just to be not, I don't know. I I don't want to say like, it's not to be a a skeptic. Skeptic isn't the right word. Apathy is the right word. Um, I I honestly think that's like a, a defense mechanism against an inherent insecurity, right? Like absolutely, you don't have to care about whatever the issues of the world or incompetence around something. Like the reason why it's cool to not care is because, like, well, then I, I get to not feel the insecurity of not knowing, right? I can just say, well, I don't care anyways. When it, when really it is, I don't know, and I want to find a way to make that okay with me. And if you don't commit to anything, and if you don't have strong opinions, then you're never going to fail. Right. Be, that, that I think is one of the biggest things that people are afraid of is failure. Right. Because like what we're, we're kind of, well, certainly like if you, if you grew up in like a public school setting um, the state teaches you to be afraid of failure, right. The state teaches you that here are the right answers. Here's the, here's the answers to the test, study those. And then we're going to give you the test and we're going to grade you based on whether or not you provided the right answers. And failure is like losing. It's bad. It's not good. Don't do it. If you fail, you're going to, if you fail here and now in this moment, you're going to fail, continue to fail throughout the rest of your life. So do not fail, which is kind of the exact opposite of how human growth works, right? It's like we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. Um, But we're not, that isn't instilled in us, at least not by state education, right? Because we're not being trained to be self-actualized individuals by the state. We're being trained to be cogs that can be shaped to fit into the machine of the bureaucracy. Um, but like we, we totally miss out and that we have that, that ego prevents that um, put causes us to tip throw, tiptoe through life in such a way where we steer ourselves down paths of um, least resistance where we're least likely to encounter failure. And I think that that is partially why like there are people in Bitcoin who are in it for the wrong reasons or refuse to even approach it is because they would hate to delve down that rabbit hole, find a strong conviction. And then, uh, because that might, that, that introduces the possibility of failure, right? It's like, mm-hmm. now you have to contend with what if I'm wrong? What, what if, what if, what if I don't figure out all the right answers? Yeah. I think also people are so invested in their worldview, you know, because your worldview is the thing that you construct over the course of your life to like make sense of the world and to feel somewhat yeah. comfortable amongst the chaos. And when something comes along that represents, possibly represents a fairly profound paradigm shift in how you understand everything from economics to money to politics to- And how you view yourself. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, because we, we always, at least to some degree, construct our perception of ourselves in relation to the world as we understand it. So mm -hmm. if our understanding of the world changes, and that means our understanding of ourself in relation to it is going to change to some degree. And the, the insecurity that so, that so many people feel is so profound that they will hold on to that constructed worldview. And in many cases, it's an adopted worldview and not a constructed one, because very few people go through the rigorous uh, process of, you know, being the one who's completely in charge of constructing their worldview and they outsource it to, you know, the dominant culture or media or, or what have you. Uh, but it's so it, it I think it's reveal it's concealing such an underlying insecurity that they hold on to it so tightly that this, it's part of the reason why they reject anything that would threaten to dramatically uh, upgrade it or or change it or require a changing of it because it, it it's such a crutch and you know I think Bitcoin again is is kind of a spiritual implement in that sense and that it it requires you to loosen the grip potentially on your worldview if you're really going to understand it and understand all the different implications or at least attempt to all the different implications and you know we see this playing out on at least on the, in the relatively small and important unimportant form of bitcoin twitter all the time when you have some you know intellectual or academic or whatever coming from another domain and they come in and they want to preserve their status, you know, they want people to speak to them in a certain way or recognize their former accolades or their credentials or whatever. And, you know, this crowd is like, fuck that, you know, like, it's all about, you know, you'll be judged on merit around here, you know, and, you know, prior stuff doesn't necessarily matter. And, you know, I'm speaking in absolute terms, there's, there's a lot of nuance here, but it does seem to be the case that those, those are those people may fall into that category of being ones that like are rigidly holding on to a worldview or an identity. And as a result, it kind of cuts them off from being able to fully engage in attempting to understand something that's quite novel and potentially represents a, you know, a, a paradigm shift that will require a, a reconstruction or recapitulating of many different things that are components of their existing worldview. Yeah. And to, trace back to what you said earlier well the, the earlier conversation topic of like is that bitcoin doing the changing or is it people that are arriving here at just the moment that they need to i mean i know like for me understanding bitcoin or under like see understanding bitcoin and then embracing the ways in which it shattered my worldview was not a problem for me second nature because i had already been through that three or four right. times in my life so it was kind of, oh, it's this again. Okay, well, I guess I know nothing. Um, and I need to be willing to admit that to myself and then build back from, from fundamental truths, um, build up axiomatically from, from, from knowing nothing, like making myself like the mind of a child again, except instead of worrying about what my friends at school at the lunch table think about me, now I'm thinking about like, okay, you know, how, does, how, does it, how do I fit into this new paradigm that I've discovered? Um, well, I think that's what so many of us have had to do. You know, maybe it's because the you know, value is such a fundamental concept and money is so much a part of the functioning and flow or communication of value, let's say, that when that, you know, when a new money emerges, I think it requires a, a reconstruction from the ground up. And that's that's kind of ego dissolving in itself, if you accept that, because you're saying like, well, I constructed my worldview and my pers my perspective on this set of principles, and now it's seeming like 
or at least we're moving into an era or a technology has arrived that's going to disrupt that foundation. And now I've got to see whether or not I need to change out the foundation. And if I do, how do I reconstruct everything on, on top of that? And that, I mean, that is basically the definition of dissolving your ego. It's, it's, it's saying like, I'm going to squash down all those things that I had built up, all those preconceived notions or notions that are, were built upon a different set of axioms or, or, you know, presumptions or, or quote unquote truths. And I'm going to do that again for what seems to be a more truthful, a more secure, a more valid set of base layer axioms. And I, I see that if, if we were going to describe what's happening to a lot of Bitcoiners, I, I, I would say that's part of it. And that's why there's such a, a, a hunger or a thirst for, you know, knowledge acquisition and truth in a variety of areas outside the realms of, you know, just monetary, uh, you know, the monetary history or monetary interests or economic interests. I mean, it's, it's, it seems to be moving outward. And uh, I think that's, that's, a big part of it. Everyone is reconstructing their perspectives on what seems to be a more truthful base layer. And that's pretty rad. I mean, that's, that's really interesting, you know, that, that we are attempting to reconstruct our worldviews around a greater sense of truth or clarity. I mean, that certainly seems to be the case for me. And, you know, back to the, what you said before about, is it a, is it a self-selection thing? And you're, you know, Bitcoin is drawing in people that are more kind of prime for this, or is Bitcoin having some sort of effect on people? I think the case, one of the, the cases for the latter, and this again is, was my own experience is I felt so uh, alienated or dejected from my appraisal of the way the world worked prior to Bitcoin, you know, and I, I had spent, a lot of time attempting to understand how the world works. And I just came to the conclusion, like tons of beauty in the world and amazing experiences and lovely people and all that kind of stuff. But structurally, I was like, this, this is really fucked, you know, and I, I don't see how this gets turned around. And among other things, I just feel like that. And I've, you know, I've said this many times before, but I think that just causes you to withdraw. You know, it doesn't invite engagement with the world because you don't even like you, you can't, you don't have that element of hope, perhaps, or you don't see how you're at the application of, of the better aspects of yourself, or even if just, we want to say your limited time and energy resources, you don't see how it's going to ameliorate the situation, at least not as much as it could. And I think for many people, Bitcoin comes along and it's that little, like, it's that little click that says, actually, all those problems that you perceive they might actually be resolvable and it might, they might actually be resolvable through this thing. And I feel like that just makes the world make more sense for a lot of people and not only make sense, but make it make sense in an extremely hopeful or positive way. Like, Oh, it, it not only do I understand, can I appreciate or understand the world better, but it actually, the possibilities are far better than I had anticipated or that I, you know, that were previously possible in the former paradigm. And as a result of that, it, it invites your own refinement and invites the process by which you delve within yourself to determine what is of the greatest value, what is the greatest use of your own limited resources and how do you, how to apply them towards the thing that the things that are the greatest meaning to you such that you can contribute to what is increasingly being seen as a, a more hopeful future. And that's, a, I think for a lot of people, that's a very transformative process.
because you go from being in the extreme hopeless and nihilistic and ap apathetic and you know who gives a fuck i might as well just live for the weekend because i'm not going to change anything to holy shit like you you feel a pressure and not maybe you feel a profound opportunity and a profound sense that um you know there's something to live for there's something to get up for there's something to strive for and you know the more you hang around i think the more that becomes clear and then you connect with other people who seem to be seeing things in a similar way and seem to be striving in a similar way and that adds fuel to the fire and perhaps this is the process of you know a counterculture emerging and potentially becoming the dominant culture at some point and the, the different characteristics of that culture and the type of ideas and values that propagate within it are being determined by all of us as we, as we engage in this process and as we go forward. And I mean, it's so fucking exciting, you know, this is why I, you know, relentlessly have these conversations and try to understand what's going on. Uh, what, yeah, what you just said really hits the nail on the head in terms of like what Bitcoin is doing and has done beyond just um, beyond just the economic side of things, beyond just the monetary things, because uh, Satoshi solved a really real problem, a really serious problem, very real problem, a very tangible problem. Uh, and there's lots of second order and third order benefits that come to the solution to that problem. But there's more than just that, right? Like for me, what, what Bitcoin taught me was that uh, a, a person can clutch their pearls all the way to the grave in terms of wishing things were different than they actually are. Um, you, and and you, can, you can bang up against the walls of the cage of whatever situation you're in and, and then just say, well, I tried to go that way, nothing worked. I tried to go that way, nothing worked, and it's hopeless. So I'm just going to just take clutch, clutch these pearls all the way to the grave in terms of like, well, this is not how it should be, and I don't like the way it is but there's nothing I can do. Um, but Satoshi, you know, one person with a, with an idea and a whole lot of sweat, uh, and, and determination can effectuate a very dramatic change on the shape of history, uh, on the shape of society, on millions of people, you know, you can impact millions of people that you'll never meet if, if with a really powerful idea and a lot of hard work, um, that's a pretty profound idea. And I think, like, I know for me, I want to, I want to follow in that footstep, like I watching Satoshi do what he did or, or learning about it uh, after the fact, watching um, a guy like Cody Wilson do what he did. Uh, if anybody that's listening to this, like, doesn't know his story, go and read his book, come and take it. His story is incredible. And he's the guy that, that just made 3d printed firearms, like a thing and just did it and was like, well, they're probably going to crucify me for this, but I'm just going to do it because I have to do it. Uh, and he did it. And, and in my opinion, that changed the world in a lot of ways that we, um, we won't fully understand for decades to come. And that, that internalization that, that even though you've banged up against the sides of the cage and said, well, this is hopeless and stupid um, doesn't mean that you're powerless in any given moment. Like, and I don't, maybe powerless isn't the right word because I do think that there is something to be said for feeling powerless and being powerless. Um, cause there are moments, plenty of moments in my life when I've been just totally powerless and, and just gone to God and said like, God, I, I have nothing. Like, I, I, I don't know what to do. 
I'm completely defeated. I have nothing. Um, I feel like I have nothing left, but that's kind of the point that you have to get to first, that feeling of having nothing, uh, having nothing left to be able to like, look at the problem with new eyes uh, and approach it in a different way and approach it in an actionable way where you might even be able to, to steer the course, you know, not just of your own life, but, but of maybe of the lives of many, many, many other people. Totally. You know, and I think what you were mentioning there is like, isn't it, isn't it just crazy, amazing, absurd, whatever you want to call it, that, as you say, a guy with an idea and a bunch of sweat can, you know, and it's more than bringing an idea into the world. It's bringing an idea that you can engage with in some capacity. And that this is kind of, you know, the process of technology, right? Manifesting an idea from your mind and transmuting it into the quote unquote real world. Um, but it, it still is kind of the idea that the, the power of an idea to awaken something inside of you or to reframe something inside of you. And I, I think this is why part of the reason why you know, the lines between Bitcoin and spirituality and Bitcoin and religion are increasingly converging and people are trying to figure out like what the appropriate relationship there is. And there's a lot of discussion happening around, you know, people that are, uh, you know, converting or to Christianity or finding Christ through Bitcoin or, you know, it being its own type of spirituality and people talk about Bitcoin Zen. And I think, you know, there's much to be determined here, but the punchline is, is that like, what do you, how should you, what should you call it? Or, or how should you perceive an idea that has such a transformative potential or effect? Um, and I think, you know, many different religious traditions, you might say like, well, in their central culture hero or central idea or central value, it kind of is that it's an I it's an all-encompassing idea or an all-powerful idea that allows you to, that delivers a power to you, that allows you to waken something within yourself, whether it's about moving toward it or whether it's about, you know, unifying with a broader value or absolute value, something like that. But all that to say, I mean, it's, it's just wild that that's what we seem to be contending with, an, an idea and an and a implementation of that idea of such power and influence well it's a very uh machiavellian political strategy too because if if to effectuate change in the world if what we had to do was convince you know 51 percent of the population to agree with our course of action um we would be totally screwed and like powerful people have always understood this well not all powerful people but but certainly many powerful people throughout history have always understood that um, shaping the will, shaping the force of the people, if you will, is more about um, <clears throat> directing that force than, than, than shaping it outright, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's like Bit Bitcoin is Machiavellian in the sense that um, we didn't sit down and say like, hey, guys, let's sit everyone down, make them all understand the benefits of sound money, and then we'll put it to a vote. And we'll just be like, guys, if, if you all agree that sound money is the way to go, then we'll dissolve the Federal Reserve and we'll do this politically and we'll reduce the spending of the federal government and it'll be great. We'll have a great kumbaya moment. Um, it's Machiavellian in the sense that like, no, you're, you're literally just getting people to adopt magic internet money. And in that sense, you're bringing about like a global decentralized monetary revolution. And I've, I've tried to apply that 
that concept of Machiavellianism to affecting change. And like some of the other things that I do, like, like WTF happened in 1971, where it's like, it's not about giving anybody the answer that I want them to have. It's just about steering the conversation towards um, the topics that I want people thinking about. Like, I don't even care. It doesn't matter if they end up in the same answer. I just need, we just, I just need to um, steer the dialogue because if I can just steer the dialogue, like, um, then, then the dom- the dominoes inevitably fall right in the directions that we want. And like, these are that mock, that principle of like Machiavellian political power, um, is not a new one and it's a very powerful one. And because we don't ever, re- we don't get a lot of peaks behind the curtain in terms of like the way the current power structures in society operate. We don't see that this is how almost everything is done these days. Like it's, it's all very much done through like political doublespeak. None of the things that if you get your information from cable news, like none of the things that you think matter are actually what matters or are actually yeah. what is, what is going on behind the scenes. And it's the same thing with Bitcoin. Like, and, and it's a good thing that that's the way it is with Bitcoin. And we should definitely embrace that. Uh, and, it, and I think that that's also partly why Bitcoiners are so toxic is because uh, that, that, that inner circle kind of wants to self-select for just the people who get it. It's like, we don't have time. You know, Satoshi said it himself. I was like, if you don't get it, I don't have time to explain it to you. It's kind of like, yeah, sorry, buddy. You know, you'll figure it out eventually. And if not, well, whatever, we're going to do this with or without you. Yeah. I mean, and it's often said about mainstream media, right? Exactly your point. They don't tell you necessarily what to think, but they, in, they guide you into what to think about. And therefore, you know, you're focusing on a bunch of mostly nonsense that is irrelevant to your life and is not the things that you should be thinking about. And I agree. I mean, I think that's why, because this dissolving effect that we were talking about with Bitcoin happens on an individual level and, you know, inevitably on a social level as well. And I think many people, as they go through that dissolving of their prior worldview, let's say their fiat worldview, if we're being a little playful about it, and then they're reconstructing it with this higher fidelity signal, let's say. And so they're hopefully comprising a worldview that is one founded on a, on a better set of axioms or principles and is more hopefully quote unquote truthful in all the different ways that it's constructed. When it looks out on the current landscape of media, government, business, of course, it just looks at it like it's a burning pile of shit and no, you know, nobody wants to give it what well, toxicity is a, a very, should be an expected response because that, you know, that big monolith of lies and deception, let's say is saying, you know, pay attention to us. This is the truth. And this is what you should be doing and do this and do that. And, you know, people that have completely extricated themselves from that worldview and, and are beginning to construct a different one, just look at it and be like, well, fuck you. No, like, I, don't, I don't, I don't want to listen to anything you have to say. And I don't want you to be involved in, in my life whatsoever. And it's, you know, it, it's seen as, well, I mean, it, it's two antithetical forces in a sense coming together. And so it's not, uh, it shouldn't be unexpected, nor should it be criticized that that relatively small cohort of people um, that are in the, you know, the, the Bitcoin reconstructing perspective camp should have that attitude towards, you know, the monolith that's attempting to control what they think and say and do. Yeah, definitely. <clears throat> when, uh, when we spoke in uh, at the conference in 20, uh, 2021 at the party or dinner we were at, I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, but we were sitting around and we were having probably a conversation not dissimilar to this one. And uh, you were like, I don't think you had told me before that you were working, like you were in the US military. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember like you were Ben dropped it. And I think you were kind of like, you were smirking a little bit because, you know, you were kind of quote unquote working for the enemy if we want to paint it in that way. And, um, and then you, I think fall last year, October, November, you'd recorded a series on your pod about, well, how you came to be in that situation and how it had been your like kind of life's ambition to, you know, be a Navy SEAL and, you know, protect the American ideals and go abroad and defeat evil and that kind of stuff. And that you'd begin probably at least in part as a result of engaging and understanding Bitcoin to have a shift in perspective, like we've been discussing. And, um, but you couldn't, when I asked you to come on the pod in last October, November, you said you were still kind of tying up some loose ends. So, I mean, I know it's a long story, but I, I think it would be interesting to hear at least the Coles notes version about uh, the process that you went through to come to what we'll discuss afterwards, which is the work you're doing today. But, you know, because it's a perfect example of what we've been discussing and also the different experiences that you had on that journey in relation to insecurity and ego death and all that kind of stuff. I just, I thought it was fascinating at the time, which is why I invited you to come on. And, you know, now that you've tied up all the loose ends, it would be, I'd be great to hear your thoughts, you know, your reflections on that journey. Yeah. So funny thing about that, when we met at that conference, I wasn't even supposed to be there. Um, I was not allowed to be there, <laughs> but I kind of snuck away because they invited me to go speak at the conference. And I was like, well, I'm not going to like let this opportunity pass me up, like just because I'm not supposed to be there. But so I was like not even supposed to be in Miami at all uh, at that why? time. Like what? Because I, I wasn't allowed to. I Because um, I never got the I never got vaccinated. And from from. So you, you meant, uh, all right, let me finish this thought. I have a tendency to go on tangents, uh, from 2020, like probably March of 2020 until the time I got out of the military, I was not allowed to go anywhere other than work and a grocery store. Uh, that was, that was it for like the majority of the time that I was in. Why, why, um, why the restrictions were just for my health and safety. I mean, I was like, for one towards the end, it was because I declined the vaccine. Um, but from, from the first half, it was just because, uh, just that was, that was the rule. That's, that's protocol. Like if you're yeah. in the military, and, you can't do very much outside. Yeah. Of so work. a lot of people don't understand that. Like when you join the military, you're subject to a completely different code of conduct than normal people. Like you have a completely different book of laws that you're subject to. Um, you're, you're punishable by like military courts, uh, additively to like civil and criminal courts. So it's like this entire separate legislative and judicial system on top of the existing one, like in the United States, at least that's all I can really speak to. Cause it's all I know. Um, it's like, if you commit a crime in the military and it's against the UCMJ and it's a criminal offense, you can be charged and punished in both courts. So it's like, you know, the military gets you, takes you to court, punishes you first. And let's say you go do like five years in prison and then you get out now you have to go do criminal court in Holy the regular shit. world. And then you suffer for that too. So like, it's, it's this totally different legal system. And um, the kind of just the catch all is 
uh, I think it's called an article 92, which is the failure to diso or failure to obey a direct order. So really any type, like someone can write, you have to have green hair on a Tuesday on a piece of paper and sign it. And if the right person signs it, it's now a lawful order. And like, if you don't obey that order, like you can be punished, um, by the military's like code of justice. Right. So that was, so when, when COVID first happened, they released this, um, guidance that basically said like, Hey, if you're in the military, you're not allowed to pretty much do anything except for go to work and, and go to the grocery store. Uh, anywhere you go, you have wow. to wear a mask. You're not allowed to go more than 50 miles from where you live. Um, you know, without permission and permissions granted on a case by case basis. And we're probably not going to give it to you. And it was like, you know, it's just like, oh, like you couldn't go to church. You couldn't go to bars. You couldn't go to movies. You couldn't go to restaurants. And, and this went on for like, up until from the beginning of 2020, up until I got out of the military, uh, I was under these restrictions. There was a little bit of period in the middle where they relaxed it. And then they were like, okay, actually we're making the vaccine mandatory. And if you don't get it, you're back under these restrictions. Um, so when I went to Miami and when I spoke at Miami, I was not supposed to be there. I was like hundreds of miles outside of where I was supposed to be at the time. Uh, and I was like, it's just worth the risk. Like, I'm just going to go do it and hopefully nothing bad happens. And I got away with it. So that worked out. Um, and I'm no longer subject to the uniform code of military justice. So come at me, I guess. But, um, so you're out, I out, am. out now. Yeah. I remember when we were or I vaguely remember when we were speaking, because I was like, why don't you just like quit sending your papers? And you're like, right. well, it's not not that easy. It's kind of complicated. So how, how did you ultimately extricate yourself? So you so you. Yeah. So that's another thing I think probably most people don't know about the military is that like when you sign a contract, your your body is owned by the government for the period of time that like you've agreed like, because the, you have to understand, like, you know, regardless of whether or not I agree with it from a pragmatic standpoint, you are owned by the, you're the property of the government because they're going to send you to your certain death, you know, in many circumstances, right? It's like to, to, to uh, serve the purposes of the government, right? And wars usually mean dangerous situations where people die. So like yeah. by nature of the, the job, like they, they own you and can send you to your death if they want. And, and they very much make a business out of that and have for hundreds of years or probably even thousands of years if we're being honest. Mm -hmm. um, so you can't just like join the military and like sign a contract that says, Hey, I'm going to do this for like four or five years and then get through it like halfway and be like, you know, this isn't really for me. Uh, people, you have to get a lot more creative than that uh, in, in most circumstances. And um, the system is very good at uh, capturing people and, and, holding on to them and making it really hard for them to get away. Uh, and that was like kind of what I went through a lot of, um, even though, you know, I, I had joined and would, would have liked to get, have gotten out after like the first year, uh, I ended up, you know, stuck for another six because there was just no way out. Um, I was just kind of stuck where I was and I couldn't really move. Uh, and, and this, all of starting in like late 2021, the second half of 2021, all the way up until I got out in 2022, uh, like in late spring of 2022, um, I was basically like a second class citizen because it's what started with coercion to receive the vaccine, the two doses of the vaccine, and then the booster turned into like a like heavy coercion. Like you're basically, we're going to turn you into a prisoner if you don't comply with this or you don't have to do it totally optional but if you don't get it you know we're going to put you on a ship and you're not going to be allowed to leave the ship 
ever. Um, and you'll just Holy be like a prisoner fuck. on that. Yeah, no, you'll just be like literally like a prisoner. The Navy had the highest compliance uh, for the vaccine of any of the branches of service because the Navy has like 300 floating prisons that it can confine people to uh, were if they're the, not. Were you in the Navy? I was, yeah. So at the time they sent me to a ship and they were like, um, you have to stay on the ship like pretty much indefinitely until you choose to get the vaccine. Totally optional. All right. If that's not coercive, I don't know what is. Uh, basically taking away, stripping away every ounce of a person's freedoms and saying, you know, it's optional, but you know, if you don't get it, you don't get to do anything. Um, and I creatively got off of that ship and got to the point where they were like, okay, well, it's not optional anymore. If you don't get this vaccine, we're going to kick you out and we're going to give you a dishonorable discharge, which in the civilian world is basically the equivalent of a felony. And we're going to take a bunch of your money back and we're going to basically put you into debt and it's going to suck. So why don't you go ahead and get that shot? And I was just pretty resolutely like, no, I'm not going to do that. Like, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. You don't have the right to tell me to do that. Um, and that, that caused a lot of waves. Like there were a lot of threats made, you know, I was served, um, like legal paperwork that basically said like, Hey, you know, we're going, we're going to prosecute you for this because you've d disobeyed a direct order. I was basically and, just like, I don't, like I don't religious, care. religious grounds doesn't help at all. They did not mm -hmm. approve any, they did not approve any religious exemptions to my knowledge, uh, in the DOD. And I actually was trying to get medical exemptions because, when I was going through SEAL training, I never became a Navy SEAL, but when I, I spent like a year in SEAL training, I went through the program twice. And when I was in SEAL training, I did get like uh, pretty messed up from it in a lot of ways. And like one of the things I had was uh, pulmonary edema, which is like when fluid comes out of your, like basically your lungs fill up with fluid. It's like yeah. a really rare medical condition that only happens to athletes in cold water. Um, I remember the story. So I had, yeah, I had like a pulmonary edema thing and I hadn't really been suffering from it, but I was like, I don't want to get this. I, I was looking at the bearers and being like, you know, there's some pretty serious like medical side effects going on here that we clearly don't understand yet. And I was like, I'm not putting this thing in my body. And I tried to raise that medical concern. And they were like, yeah, nope, sorry. The, the guidance is airtight. Like we can't give you a medical exemption for this um, unless you take the first shot and have anaphylaxis. So I was basically Jesus. in a position where they were like, you're either getting this, like we're, we're not going to hold you down and put it in, but like, we're, we're going to ruin your life if you don't get it. And I was just like, all right, I'll call your bluff. And I did. And, and actually uh, they, they had let me come home because I was uh, my wife was pregnant. And I was expecting, we're expecting my son and I came home. Um, so my wife could deliver our son. And the day after my son was born, we got into a really bad car accident um, just on the way home from the hospital and Jesus. my wife like broke her back and like, it was really bad. And, uh, the Navy actually recalled me to my duty station the very next day after this car accident where my wife is home with a two-year-old and a newborn with a broken back. That's how much the Navy cared about like it's individual people. It's like, well, you're a problem and we need you back here today. Um, regardless of whatever your exigent circumstances are. So like I was, in that, in that situation, they called me back to my duty station to serve me legal paperwork that said, we're intending to like prosecute you, you know, to the fullest extent on this. And then I was able to go back home and be with my family for a few days. And then I had to come back again. Uh, well, all that turned out to just be a lie. Like they were basically just trying to threaten me. Um, 
they had no intentions to like pursue those, that full legal course of action against me. They were serving that paperwork in the intent of getting more people to comply with the order, because once they get the compliance, like that's all that really matters. Um, and it was crazy because I was reading bureaucracy by Mises at the time. And one of the things that he highlights in that book is that compliance is the ultimate truth in bureaucracy because compliance is like the highest virtue because truth doesn't matter because like individuals have no agency. So when you're issuing an order from like the top, all that matters is that all of the cogs turn the way that they're supposed to. Um, that's the only way that like a bureaucracy can even somewhat sort of function. And because people at the top tend to operate on such limited scope of information and like, which is why we prefer free market situations and individualism and individual action over um, any type of central planning is just because central planners can never have adequate information to make decisions like for individuals that are beneficial to the individuals, like on a, on a broad and general basis, it's impossible because they don't have the right information. So like bureaucracy is just, and this was something that I, I butted my head against repeatedly during my time that I was like in this prison sentence, like long before the COVID thing started, I was, I was butting in heads with this problem of um, rigid adherence to procedure, uh, even when it made no sense, even when like you would look around and just be like, guys, what are we doing? This is literally stupid. Like either someone's going to get killed or um, this is just a complete waste of time like a complete waste of money or like this literally doesn't make any sense. It's the opposite of what we should do. Well, it doesn't matter because this is what the instruction says, or this is what we were told to do. Or and it's like, there is no room. There is no space for agency. There is no space for questions. There is no space for truth. Um, and the, the really unfortunate thing is that a lot of people in the military, like if they're not libertarians, if they haven't read Rothbard, like they don't, they, they know there's problems, but they can't, articulated in that way like they can't capture it and say like oh i understand this mechanism um and it's it's quite sad actually that there's so many people in today's society that are vying for central planning uh across all aspects of society and have never lived in it because i will tell you it is very oppressive and is often very destructive and it's very wasteful um and anybody that's ever that's been in the military in the last 10 years, I can't speak to what it was like before, but, um, and has seen that and understands like the mechanisms at play would, I'm sure echo what I'm saying. Yeah, man. I, um, it's, I mean, it's always been something that I've been very critical of and is antithetical to my own worldview, but I recently, and you know, it, it, you're, what you're saying makes me think of just the tragic outcomes of a, system of compliance like that and, you know previously i would have thought of like you know soldiers in world war one just coming you know basically there's an you know a barrage of machine gun fire coming across the no man's land and they're just told all right boys it's your turn hop on out and go see if you can make it to the other side and you know you can imagine they would all just be like there's no there's no fucking chance we're gonna make it like 10 feet like we're walking into a wall of bullets they're like, yeah, but you know, that's kind of the orders and this is how we're playing the game at this point in time. So that's just the way it is. So on you go. And, and then I recently watched the um, Ken Burns nine part civil war documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really, really interesting. And a, and a similar thing, right? Like, you know, uh, I don't know if it was Gettysburg or Vicksburg, but you know, um, and General Lee, you know, I, I knew nothing about this stuff before, you know, and of course the, the, 
the the common or modern thing is like south bad north good right. yay yeah. north one and um general lee so was much- a pretty awesome dude it seems he was, like an, he was like an incredible man, you know, yeah. and, and he wasn't even on the side of the South issues in terms of, uh, you know, slavery and that kind of stuff. He was just from Virginia and he was more loyal to Virginia than he was to uh, to the federal government. Yeah, yeah exactly. Did, did this and just he, become a Confederate sympathizer podcast? <laughs> are we white well, nationalists I, now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course we are. But, um, you know, he seemed and he seemed like and this is so often the case, I, I, you know, I, I recently read uh Ben Franklin's autobiography, and I've been reading about some of the uh, older figures and reading the Federalist Papers right now. And like, of course, faults, everyone has faults. Many of them are, are so many of our, some of our behaviors are very difficult to assess while we're in a cultural paradigm, right? And I'm not necessarily, I'm not excusing them, but I'm saying that like, even with their faults, we should recognize them, but also we should recognize, you know, their virtues and how amazing some of these people were. And it, my initial impressions, and I need to follow up further, but General Lee seemed like a really like amazing man. And he was yeah. there for, and he was leading the South. The South was way less funded, had way fewer resources, had way fewer people. And he was, you know, a, a, a gentleman philosopher, military leader, you know, the, the whole time. And he, and anyways, the reason why I bring it up is because one of his foibles, you know, because he, he ran, he, he was just like an outstanding military leader. But one of the, you know, historians basically criticized one of his moves was, again, I don't know if it was Gettysburg or Vicksburg, but basically, you know, um, uh, the Union had the high ground in, in, the, in the battlefield. And I think uh, Lee ordered like 12,000 cavalry to just you know storm the hill or something like that and you know everyone just got slaughtered basically and it was a big loss for the confederacy and it, it was i think it was a long in in the war where the writing was kind of on the wall anyways and the, the south couldn't afford such a big loss and that's why maybe it was you know uh, became such a critical move on the behalf of uh, lee but again it's another one of those circumstances at least when i saw it i was like man you think these guys like you know they've been at war for so long and you know they're away from their family and they're making so many sacrifices and they have so much hope in their hearts and minds that you know they're obviously going to be victorious and not die and be able to see their family again and all this stuff and then you know they're facing a bigger force on the high ground raining down bullets and they're told like we gotta we gotta try we gotta make an effort and you go and you know what's going to happen as soon as you set out on that course, but you're part of a, a system of compliance that's been put in place and you're wrapped up in it and your, your fate is basically sealed once you sign on the dotted line. And once you agree to, you know, first put on the suit and, and march in the, you know, march in the, in the parade or the crew or whatever it's called. And, um, yeah, I mean, th- this is the danger of, of such systems, right? But it, it does. I mean, there's so many things I want to bring up with you. We'll get back to your some of the aspects of your story that I wanted to touch on. But having had these experiences in the military, and you know, I know you're extremely well read on like the Austrian uh, school writers uh, and probably have some strong opinions on governance models and that kind of stuff. What is 
the proper role of the monopoly on violence in a in a jurisdiction, in a society, in a in a particular geographic area? How should it be constituted, and how should it operate, if at all? <laughs> That's a really hard hard question, like really, really a difficult question. Because I've thought about this a lot, particularly, um, well, because. America has been at pretty much a constant state of war since its inception. I think that there's only been six years in all of America's history that the nation wasn't at war with somebody somewhere for something. Um, Yeah. No, it's like, I I don't think very many people realize that, but America has literally been at war since it was founded. Um, And certainly you could highlight the arbitrariness of a lot of that war, you know, especially in like the 19th century and and the 20th century. But when America was a fledgling nation, like those wars were trade wars for the most part. Um, Like America founded its Navy because of American merchant ships that would get captured and seized by um, Muslim pirates, you know, off the coast of Europe where then the, the crews would then be pressed into slavery and all the cargo would be confiscated. And here you have like this fledgling new nation that needs to trade with Europe in order to like keep its economy going because it can't produce any finished goods. It, it just has all these raw materials and no means of production um, beyond just the ability to produce all these raw materials. So it has to send its raw goods over to Europe um, and bring back like finished goods. And that, that, monopoly on violence was really kind of born out of the economic necessity to facilitate trade. Um, so it's a really hard question. It's like, is there a right answer there? Like, did Thomas Jefferson make the right decision when he um, commissioned like the building of, of the ships and, and, and fought uh, the Barbary coast wars? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I have no idea. Um, but I do but know it's, that it's not like an American only phenomenon, right? It's a question that all, groups of people have to contend with. And I guess Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I ask is like, if we accept that it's a necessity, can it function in any other way than through the compliance structure that we've been criticizing here? I think it absolutely can. I think it should. And I also think it has to, Um, because like, if you look at like the American revolution, the American revolution wasn't fought with regiments of trained soldiers that signed on the dotted line and followed orders the american revolution was fought by men fighting to protect certain ideals um in the face of oppression right and and those men took their own arms up you know upon their own volition and and fought against a tyranny that was oppressing the way that they wanted to live their lives. That's wholly different than um, the way the the 21st century war machine operates. Um, in most cases, serving the political interests and the banking and financial interests of the involved nation states, protecting its status quo and establish orders of operations um, at expense of like the the freedoms like. The whole idea that the United States military protects freedom and democracy around the world is just absurd. Uh, first of all, we're not even a democracy. So why is our why is the tagline of the United States military to protect freedom and democracy around the world? It doesn't even make any sense. Uh, second of all, like why is it our right to impose that on anybody else? Uh, 
And third of all, like we all know, it's it's all really just about money anyway. It's not actually about freedom and democracy. And and we don't even have you know freedom and quote unquote democracy. And in a lot of cases, and and the individuals that like have pledged their life to this destructive machine of uh, this war machine, industrial military complex, like they they're giving up uh, all of their civil liberties just to be able to like join in on the fight. Like it's it's totally ass backwards from. Um, I, I don't think that a monopoly on violence is ever healthy. I think monopolies on violence tend to occur, but I think that the more you can spread out, um, spread out like that, the, the violent means, like the more you can spread that out laterally rather than concentrating it in, in like this hierarchical top-down structure, like where it's spread more vertically, you need to spread that the means of violence like as laterally as you possibly can across society. Because if those merchant ships that had been traveling, you know, to Europe had had cannons on them, maybe they wouldn't have been captured by the Moroccan pirates and pressed into slavery. And maybe that wasn't like, maybe that wasn't how ships operated back then. And that never would have been the way that they operated, but maybe that was how they needed to operate. Right. Because that planted the seeds for the 21st century war machine. So, um, you know, I, that's why I like, I really embrace the ideas of, um, you know, like individuals arming themselves and like the, the second amendment is by far and above the most important civil liberty like afforded to Americans and it's somehow stood the test of time uh, despite the many attempts to impress against it. But like what it does, why the reason that it's made America so resilient as, as a nation of civil liberty is just because it spreads out the means of violence across society and it makes individuals more expensive to tyrannize. Uh, it makes tyranny less profitable simply because it's harder to do. It's harder to effectuate. And it's the same thing like you know, you can, you can look at it like across all of history and at the nation state level. It's like the more means of violence you have spread laterally across a society, the more difficult that society is to like tyrannically control. Um, it, and I know that that sounds overly simplistic, but it really is that simple. It's like either, you know, you, you have to have this centralized power that, that controls the means of violence, or you have to spread it out laterally across the society and you have to trust that individuals will um, make the best judgment calls when they are called to do so. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And it's disheartening that in all but like one or two countries in the world that people fail to, re to recognize that, you know, and, and people don't appreciate the value of taking that approach. I saw someone on Twitter recently it might have been uh, actually. It might have been a funny like a JP Sears um, like parody things, uh, but he was pointing out the very seeming you know seemingly true. I I didn't verify them myself, but I've heard them several times. Where it's like he he'll, he'll bring up a country and he'll be like disarmed citizens in 1963, genocide in 1967, mm -hmm. disarmed citizens in 1974, genocide in 1979. You know and like. Obviously, there's a pattern here. When the citizens are dis disarmed, it's harder for them to defend defend themselves. They're less expensive uh, to to tyranny, and you know I, I agree with that. And the the interesting component of how technology influences all these political discussions, let's say, you brought up Cody Wilson earlier. I mean, the 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 fact that people are going to be able to produce automatic weapons with a you know $300 printer in their basement well now but certainly in 10 years time it's going to be 
you know, at a very high level at a very low cost, that kind of makes the whole gun debate moot, right? And it, it becomes a question of like, well, what are you going to do when technology comes around and disrupts whatever you're trying to impose on, you know, the political or governance system that you're a part of? And I think the same is true with Bitcoin. You know, I, I've I uh, spoke with a, a, a famous Venezuelan politician yesterday, and you know, I have a ton of respect for him. You know, he's clearly a man of, or it seems to me, a man of exceptional character and honesty and all that kind of stuff. But I, I do feel like most politicians operating in the world today are operating in a paradigm that is going to be rapidly dissolved by Bitcoin, right? When you, when you can't, not only when you can't you know, print money, but when you can't even know how much money your citizens have and when and where they're transacting and whom with and in what amounts, when you know nothing about their financial lives effectively, how do you fund all these feel-good programs that it may very well be the case that they're coming from the compassion of your own heart. Look at how, look at all the inequality, look at all the deprivation. I want to be the one to help fix that. I want to deliver education and medical services and all this kind of stuff to these people. You know, and we, you and I would probably have uh, ready arguments against why that's not the most efficient way to allocate capital and why ultimately it's not sustainable because if you just decide to allocate capital there rather than letting the market determine where and how much it's allocated, then it's not sustainable. And when the, you know, when the money dries up or when circumstances change, they can't continue to be funded, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, Bitcoin is going to mean that increasingly you can't do any of that. You know, so the, the objective for a politician, you know, if you want to be that type of person in the world today, I think it's in, increasingly you need to recognize the degree to which technology is going to influence your previously held you know, philosophy or notions about politics and try to cohere or conform what you, if you really want to do well, if you're one of the rare altruistic people that, uh, that want to try to help others in, in a political dynamic, how can you conform or act in accord with the changing technological landscape? And it, it kind of seems to me the only way you can really do that is your primary objective has to be to shrink government and give people more and more freedom as much as possible uh, and allow the freedom that technology is delivering to people to be maximally accessible and to to play out its its process um but the final point i wanted to make about the monopoly on violence is people are going to join forces no matter what, right? Because in, in most cases, particularly in, in physical violence, you know, like you'd rather have someone to help you with, you know, and that, I don't think that's ever going to change. I do think it's interesting that we're moving into an era where, because the money printer has obviously fomented a, the, the massive acceleration in the size of government and the ability to fund war and, and violence on a massive scale. But even, you know, prior to that, it still occurred. And Part of the reason why it occurred because there was an incentive to do so because capital was so easily uh, confiscated. Now we're moving into an area, an, an era, and this is discussed quite often in Bitcoin land, where capital is much less easily confiscated either through the printer or through violence. And so, how is that going to change the degree to which violence is able to be exacted by the state? But even perhaps more interestingly, how is it going to change the degree to which 
people join forces to defend themselves more effectively. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer to that, obviously, but it still seems to be the case. Well, I guess it's probably the case that more and more people are going to take advantage of those technological improvements to secure themselves and then to as and when necessary for the reasons that they find meaningful like you were saying before like certain ideals and principles why people would come together and try to push back on something that will be the impetus for for joining forces but the the tricky thing to determine is how what the transition looks like when when we have such behemoth you know militaries in the current fiat nation state world i presume they will increasingly lack the funding to maintain their size but there's nuclear arsenals to consider and there's you know there's lots of moving parts that are probably going to take some time to to unwind and um yeah it's uh, it's something that i don't have a tremendous degree of clarity on yeah that's a tough problem isn't it how do you deal with i mean the amount of money that the 21st century nation state was able, or the amount of capital that the 21st century nation state was able to accumulate and use to just create such destructive means of wanton violence, like nuclear, like nuclear bombs. Um, you're going to be dealing with that problem 100, 200, 300 years later. I mean, it, there's no way around it. And it, it high, you know, there is certainly a degree of wrath that gets poured out by God, you know, on mankind. Um, when, when certain things are allowed to run their course. And that's a good example. I mean, it's like, you know, you, you, you end up moralizing and justifying. I, I love Frederick Bastiat's the law because he talks about so much about how like you end up moralizing and justifying society creates these moral structures for itself that enable that kind of theft when it's that pervasive throughout society. Um, all of the culture and, and the organizational hierarchies and the structures that, that get built up around societies that, normalize uh plunder uh are are designed to moralize plunder and make it okay for the people who are able to do it to the point where you eventually end up with total plunder because uh, you're you're taking from your neighbor and your neighbor's taking from you and from the guy across the street and it's like that's just how it is and that's what everyone expects um they should be able to do and like there is a certain degree that 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 violation of natural law has consequences in 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 the real world like i believe it does and i believe like that that is the wrath of god you know being poured out upon society in the 21st century nation state is probably a great example of the the long standing long suffering consequences of extreme capital misallocation through um, the legalization the moralization of plunder uh, of individuals in a society like the total abandonment of the idea that, you know, it's good and right for a man to keep the whole uh, product of his own labor and to enjoy that, that product of his own labor, rather this, I, this perverted idea that he owes it to someone else simply because he was born in a certain place like that, that that's absurd. Yeah. And I think one of the, the components that allows that moralization to take place is what we were talking about earlier, that that apathy. And when you have such a gargantuan monopoly, not only a monopoly on violence, but almost like a, and you know, uh, subconsciously like an all knowing, all powerful entity that's going to provide you with so many things and it's going to set the rules and it's going to punish you if you're, if, if you do wrong, how much does just simply to, you know, preserve 
a worldview that's not, you know, that's not broken by that circumstance? How much do you protect yourself through apathy and just say like, yeah, no, of course I agree with that, you know? And how much does that foster this moralization where you say like, these are the moral parameters that this system creates. And just by virtue of being a person in that system and the, the, the conscious and subconscious recognition of such a disparity in the balance of power, you just end up, it's easier for you to say that it's right and go along with it than to say that it's wrong and try to resist it for the, the, the both mental and physical anguish and ostracization that would come with attempting to resist it. And, and this is what we were talking about also with Bitcoin. I mean, I think part of the reason why so many of us were somewhat withdrawn or didn't feel like we were fully engaging in the world is because of that very dynamic where it's like, I don't want to participate in it. I, I'm seeing a lot of the things that are morally and structurally wrong, but I don't see an alternative. So my, my, my only recourse is basically to, to eject, you know, or to isolate myself to some degree. And then Bitcoin comes on the scene and it introduces another possibility for a structure and very interestingly seems to have a type of morality built in to what is permitted and what is not permitted on, on the base layer of this structure. And that seems much more conducive to what we might believe to be right, you know, in our hearts and minds and cohere with whatever our philosophy about right and wrong is. And then that awakens something inside because now instead of having to protect yourself from the, the conscious influence of the structure from the imposition of the structure now you're actively attempting to build out another structure that is far more healthy that is far more aligned with your own ideas of right and wrong and that as a result of that awakens something very powerful or fundamental within you and helps you perhaps ascend to a, a greater version of yourself Side note, I just thought about this because I mentioned Bastia. That was the last time I came on your show because we did that reading club. Oh, the with, book club? Uh, yeah, we did. We talked about Bastia. It's the law. I forgot I actually about that. Brought, I, I actually brought up that book to the, the politician I was speaking to yesterday. Um, you know, because again, he's an awesome dude, but I, he, you know, he wants to do education and medical care and all this kind of stuff for, for people. And, um, you know, we, we didn't have time nor was it the proper con um you know context to get into a deep political philosophy discussion but you know i was kind of nudging in that direction around you know if there is a role for the state and for the monopoly on violence it's it certainly i think a minimal one is what uh the best use of it is and you know if anything protect protecting private property is is probably the best use. And, you know, Bastiat obviously talks a lot about that. Well, so I have a lot of thoughts on this. The nation state is what killed God in our society, right? Because the nation state became God because the nation state is the false God. It is a false God because you have an entire group of people in a society looking to a government as their, their savior, their provider, you know, literally the entity that makes the world turn around, that makes the sun come up and makes the sun go down. I mean, is it a coincidence that, you know, in my country, kids grow up saying the Pledge of Allegiance every single day while facing the flag every single morning of their life 
for 18 years or 16 years or whatever it is. And then by the time they're adults, they now think the government can control the weather. I mean, that's not a coincidence that that's quite literally replacing God with the nation state. It's, it's like a, um, we're back at the point now where we were um, before the Protestant Reformation, because a lot of people falsely uh, equivocate religion, the, the, the man-made state institutional side of administration, they falsely equivocate like that part of religion with like faith in God or, or like following of like, like reading the Bible when, when in actuality, like the Protestant reformation broke away from that false God of the state, which at the time was the church, which was just an administrative bureaucracy. That was an arm of the monarchy that just basically their job was to control what the people ought to believe. Like that was what they did. Um, that's no different than like the, the progressive reformation of American politics that happened under Wilson, like Wilson's in Wilson's own writings and words, that was the job of the, of the intellectual bureaucracy and of um, the state's like administrative arm was to control what the people ought to believe to steer them in the directions that they should go. Like we, we went full circle and the nation state came back around and replaced God in the exact same way that the church had done prior to the Protestant Reformation. And what, what the, the reason that the Protestant Reformation was so like amazingly powerful was because it set man free from that bondage to the false God. Right. And that's like, we're living in the same thing. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes in that same echo today of living. Um, you know, the majority of people that I know, um, it's almost impossible to have a conversation with them because they still believe the government is God. Like I can't have very many actionable conversations with them about solutions to problems or even about the problems themselves because their entire worldview is shaped around how the government provides stability and security and prosperity and literally is their lifeblood in every circumstance. Um, that is definitionally biblically a false God. Like your, your reverence and worship goes to the state. Well, that's why you can't think about anything other than um, whether or not red team or blue team is in charge. Like it's because it's, it's literally your God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view and the tragic aspect of that is well perhaps it's not tragic perhaps it's just natural but the more those beliefs are amplified um and the more damage that believing in them do the more like what i'm trying to say is like the the, the worse circumstance that that type of relationship to the state and as a result the size and power of the state creates the more people you you know rely on it or or look to it to resolve the very problems that it instigated and started in the first place, and I think this is oftentimes why you get you know basically a collapse of this kind. And I, I look around the world today and I see in like Colombia, and again, like I'm to your point, I'm not very political. I, there's probably certain issues that I would say I you know I agree with the ones espoused by this side or that side, but you know I, I'm I don't engage in politics, but in the world today, it, it seems clear to me that uh, policies, socialist policies, you know, far left policies that continue to expand the size and influence and power and capital allocating uh, rights of the state 
seem to be getting more and more popular as a result of the very problems that they caused. And, you know, I think in Colombia and Chile, they just elected uh, far left or socialist leaders. And I just, you know, I, I just sigh, you know, because I'm like, we all know where this is going to go. You know, they're promising the world to a bunch of people who have been deprived for a variety of reasons for a very long time. And nobody wants to, nobody wants to say the un unpopular or hard thing, which is we need to dramatically course correct. And that's going to mean that a lot of you aren't going to, you know, I'm not going to, a lot of your problems aren't going to be resolved and immediately, and especially they're not going to be resolved by somebody else. But if we put, you know, the proper things in place or more, if we remove the, you know, the impediments, then, you know, over the course of time, you'll be more in charge of your life and you'll be able to determine the course it takes. But, you know, nobody wants that kind of medicine. That's not a very popular message. People who are suffering, and I'm, again, I'm very sympathetic to this as well. I mean, if you are struggling to put food on the table, you know, you don't want to hear like, hey, bro, low, low time preference and like, just get the government out of the way. And, you know, over the course of a few years or decades, you and your family will be in a better situation. It may be true, but they want to hear someone that's going to say, you know, we'll give you food stamps starting next month when you elect me. And don't worry about all the problems that that's going to cause and all the inflation, all the chaos and all the violence and the ultimate collapse, right? That's, we'll worry about that later. And um, I'm not, not, not sure where I was going on that uh, ramp. That's how we come full circle back to why it's such a breath of fresh air to discover the, the Machiavellian action that I was talking about earlier, right? That is Bitcoin or, or, or similar such approaches to effectuating change is because we don't have to worry about which politicians we get into office. We don't have, I mean, of course, to a certain degree, we have to worry about that just because of those people's ability to um, impact our lives and, yeah. and interfere in our ability to like, just live. Um, to a certain degree, like, I don't believe that I'm immune from those things, but um, it's such a waste of our energy to, to be, to be running up against that wall. Um, when we'll, the walls that we should be banging up against is like, okay, what kinds of actionable solutions can I work on from here? Um, that, that the ripples of which could, could be changing society long after I die, uh, rather than worrying about like, geez, can we just get a guy with some sense into some of these political positions who takes a measured um, approach to solving these problems? Because that's never going to be politically popular. Like it just isn't. Um, the tragedy yeah. of the commons is a very real thing. And, and it's why, you know, kings ruled with um, like a, a certain degree of autonomy that was never directly about um, communicating like clearly and openly uh, the, the problems of the day. It was always about uh, manipulating the will of the people to where it ought to go. And, and I don't necessarily believe, um, I don't necessarily believe that like that, that that's just because so much of like America's downfall has come from that attitude. Uh, but it's been steered by fools in directions that are bad. And like, like Wilson was a great example, Woodrow Wilson. Um, FDR was another good example. Um, probably you could probably come up with millions of examples for the modern day uh, politicians all over the world who, who, you know, whether they're evil or um, just stupid, it doesn't even matter like which one is which, because the, the outcome is the same. Um, but we don't, we don't have to waste energy on that anymore. Right. Because now we've been 
we're like, oh, there's a, there's a third option. Um, I can just opt out of that and focus my energies. And now like even more so as, as those of us that are kind of awakened to this reality, this, oh, there, we don't have to get involved in this. We don't have to um, change the system by pushing left button or right button. There's like a whole other control room in the back that we can go um, flip switches on and, and totally mess things up like that in, in a good way, right? Not in like a way where we want to, because I don't think any of us want to, to regress. Like I, I would much, I want to leave my kids a, a much better world than I inhabited. Um, we can do that. We can do that. That's what I'm trying to do right now. Like that's what I spend my time working on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and this is, it's been very helpful to me. And I, you know, I'm extremely grateful for Bitcoin for a number of reasons, but one of them is I just care less and less and less about the things that otherwise might trigger me, you know, doom scrolling on Twitter, broadly speaking, um, and just able to focus on, on things that I deem valuable and meaningful and not have to participate in all, in all that stuff and, and not be bothered by it. And to, to the discussion we were having earlier, just the extreme sense of peace that that delivers and the, uh, the sense that you're on the right track, both in terms of devoting your attention to something that's meaningful, but also doing so in a manner that's going to facilitate your own development, probably in the most uh, useful or effective way that is currently available to you. And then and again, the proceeds might have benefits even beyond yourself, and that would be great. Or maybe it's just the proceeds are accrued to you and your family, and that would be absolutely fine too. But it's, it's such a relief not to have to, to engage in a process that's become so asinine and so corrupt and so frustrating. Mm -hmm. um, and I, are you good on time? Yeah. Because um, I do want to talk about the way in which you're doing that right now. But I, I wanted to go back uh, to your SEAL experience because I just, when, when I was listening to the, I think you did a three-part podcast on it. And yeah, just, I've since taken it down, by the way. So if anybody's, it was just, it was very personal. It was one of those things that like I put up for whoever heard it and I've since taken it down. I've, I've debated putting it back up, but it, the audio quality was really bad because I recorded in the car. I, but, I think you should put it up, but that's just my, uh, I, my I may, two cents. I, maybe I'll remaster it or something, but. Well, I mean, the reason why I say that is because I think a shitload of people can relate to it, you know, and uh maybe not the specifics of your situation, you know, going through SEAL training and having this ambition to be in the military and stuff. But, you know, I, I think we can all look back on our life or even in many respects, the life we still lead and, uh, you know, wonder if we're doing the right things and wonder if we're striving in the right manner and, you know, should we be course correcting and how should we be feeling about these insecurities and ego and stuff that we brought up earlier? I mean, I think it all just helps contextualize how we orient ourselves in the direction we, we, we strive to move to in. And uh, so for that reason alone, I think it's great. And then I think it's also great because there's a comfort in knowing that other people are out there uh, having similar experiences and finding ways in which to transcend them toward, you know, beneficial outcomes. Uh, but what, what, Remind me again what, why you were so motivated to pursue this course of action in life. And then I, I guess the, the piece I'm interested in, the reason why I want to know that is how that radically 
so radically changed around because I think you were kind of rah, rah America Mm -hmm. early in life and you wanted to participate in that. And now you're basically like an anarcho capitalist sort of philosophy. And yeah, Um, it was definitely a combination of things. It was a combination of um, a big part of it was my insecurity. I wanted other people to just think I was like the coolest badass. Like that was what I wanted. Like I wanted to be <laughs> the guy that people were like, holy crap, that dude is awesome. Like, that's just what I want. And I wanted women to swoon over me. Like I wanted, I just, this is what I wanted. Um, very much ego. Um, and then that was probably, you know, if I'm being honest with myself, that was the top motivation above anything else. Um, below that was <laughs> seeing that the world was pretty messed up not really being able to understand it and articulate it and having a desire for those kinds of skills. Like I want to be able to shoot guns and blow stuff up and just do sneaky, badass stuff. Um, <laughs> that, that was a big part of it. And then below that, I think was um, feeling like I had this, this supernatural calling to go and serve the false God, right. Uh, to go and if, if I would just go at the time, ISIS was like a big thing. Uh, and I remember, thinking like, oh man, I just need to go and just like, if, if, if people like me would just step up and go and like defeat the, the nation's enemies, like we wouldn't have all these problems. It's like, we just need hard men like me to go in and, and do the dirty job that needs to be done. And I was like, that's just, just, just a question was, was your faith an element in play at the time there as well? Or did that come later? I've always believed in God. Um, I've always believed in God, um, but I've God's always been faithful, and I have not always been faithful. So it, it's kind of a matter of like I, I didn't really have when I was. God knew that my ego needed to die, so I, I think that what I went through, what I went through for a reason, was because I was just my head was way too far up my ass when I was like in my young, in my early twenties. Um, so the only like, and, and it took, I had already been through quite a lot in life up to that point. So it took, it took me literally going to hell and back, um, to, to get out of where I was and, and to, to literally to, to, to burn down the forest so that there could be new growth, so to speak. So, you know, when, when I was, on the, on the other side of that delusion of grandeur that I had. Um, and, and I, you know, it, it ended up, that was like 90% of the people who try to go become Navy SEALs never become Navy SEALs and end up going to do something else for the Navy. Cause that's what the way the Navy uses that program is like, Hey, um, educated, fit, motivated young men come try out this really cool opportunity we have. Oh, sorry, you didn't make it. Well, you can go be a cook now or whatever. Um, so that's, that was like a big part. Like, so I got kind of deceived into that trap, but being on the other side of that, like once that delusion was dispelled and I no longer saw myself as the guy who's going to be the Navy SEAL. Cause that was like what my entire identity was, was for like four or five years of my life. Um, and, and having that part of my identity destroyed, like just totally destroyed me. Like it brought me down to like just nothing. Um, and then having to rebuild myself from there, you know, I, th- I think that I went through that for a reason. Uh, and I think it was to get me over that hump of like, just being, having literal blinders on and th- just thinking I knew everything already and thinking I like, 
um, it was the only way that I, I got to where I am today. Right. So I, I do believe that like, you know, the Bible says that all things work together for good for those who are called according to my purpose. And I believe that. Um, and I believe that like my life is a testament to that. Um, so it, in the, in the, in the aftermath of that, of like being totally destroyed as a person and, and having no identity and, and really living in suffering a lot, really for like most of the time that I was in the military from like in the beginning when it started out great. And I was like, Oh, this is an awesome adventure. And I'm going to go do this thing. I really want to do and have all this meaning and purpose and be a part of like a, a great community of people of really awesome individuals and, and find all of this value and, and meaning and, and, um, serve my God, this false God that I was so obsessed with, which was the state. Um, and then in the aftermath of that, I, I keep saying the same thing over and over rebuilding myself, uh, into something new. I, I had to go through that, that destructive process. And, and like I said before, I, that wasn't the first time in my life that I went through an ego death, but definitely, um, that was the most severe was like the aftermath of that, the training itself, which is just a whole can of worms we could get in. There's a documentary. If anyone wants to go watch, it's called Buds 234. You could probably find it on YouTube, but it's just like follows a class through this training pipeline. And it's way, 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 way worse, easily like a hundred times worse in real life than it actually looks on film. Like it's just, very, it's serious. It is serious, man. It's, um, it's a lot like being in like a prisoner of war. Like it's just torture and it's torture that you're voluntary, voluntarily subjecting yourself to every single day. You choose to be there because you can quit at any time. Right. And I remember now that I think that part when you, you failed the, the, the swimming challenge maybe, or that was a part where you had the pulmonary edema come up and you're talking about being broken down. I mean, I mean, again, we referenced this earlier in relation to the kind of paradigm shift that occurs when you start to understand Bitcoin and how that is a, a type of ego death and dissolving a worldview and having to reconstruct it. But uh, how did you, you know, when you were so committed to something and then to have it be snatched away from you and it was such an integral part of your identity. I mean, what, what were that, what was the immediate aftermath? Like, like where was your head at and how were you figuring out how to reorient yourself in, in a healthy and productive way? Well, it's definitely like you go through the five stages of grief. You know, I mean, it starts with denial. Like I remember um, they have like a bell at the, on the compound there. And like you, when you like drop on request from the program, which is like the way 95% of people leave that training is like, you have to go and ring the bell. Um, and I had told myself that I would never ring that bell. Um, but the circumstance that I was in, like they basically led me to believe, I don't know what the truth is, but like they led me to believe that in that moment, I had no chance. I had no choice that I had to go and ring the bell. Um, and I was like, but I don't want to ring the bell. I won't ring the bell. And they were like, well, but you don't have a choice. And I sat out there for like a, a couple of hours, uh, just like sitting there refusing to ring the bell. And they were like, well, you, you don't have a choice. Like you have to ring the bell. It's too late now. Like you've already, you're already in this situation. Like you're not going back to the class. You have to ring the bell. And I cried, man. Like I cried. Uh, I, I'm not ashamed to admit it. Grown ass man. I cried my eyes out because it was just, it was, that was just in that moment. Like that was a thing that I told myself I would never do. Um, and it, my entire identity like fell apart in that moment because now I was no longer the guy who was going to become a Navy SEAL and I'm just me. Right. And I had to face that. Um, and that was very dark and very lonely. Like, I, and I remember at the time I've known my wife since I was like 15, but at the time, like her and I were not really, um, and I always knew I was going to marry her and she always knew I was going to, she was going to marry me, but we were like kind of wayward. Like we, we kind of like did this a couple of times in life and right. uh, ended up like back together 
shortly after that happened, we got married like, like two or three months after I got dropped from that program. Um, and we weren't even like really speaking at the time. So I remember very distinctly like begging God, uh, like just in tears one night, like not to take her away from me because I had, I felt like I had already lost everything about who I was, but that was one thing that I was still certain of. And I was like, just don't take her from me. Like you've, you've taken these other things from me and, and maybe there's meaning and purpose in that at the time it didn't feel it. I couldn't feel it. All I was felt was the suffering, but I was like, just, just don't take her from me. And we got married like two or three months later. So that was like a big part in, in me rebuilding myself and realizing it's like, Oh, you know, I can have a family. I, I, and I can, I can, I wouldn't have been able to have this family that I have now, you know, if, if that training had gone differently and I had maybe come out on the other side of it differently, um, I'd, I'd still be an asshole and I'd be off doing something else. So, um, yeah, big changes you, on me after that. Did another question that popped up, which is a bit of a divergence, maybe we'll come back, but when you were in the military subsequent to this in, you know, some other capacity in the Navy, did you ever talk to the other guys about, you know, your emerging, well, critiques of the system or political or economic philosophy? Like you know, presumably you have a lot of time to just hang out and, and chat like was there any were they receptive to these ideas were there any other people interested in in the same thing or what was what were those interactions like from my experience the majority of the people in the military are either don't think about those kinds of things at all or are uh, a bit confused on how their means don't line up don't align with their ends um i would say there's probably a very small percentage of people that were like me um, but they were not easy to find. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Like there's a lot of really great people that like serve yeah. in, in those types of capacities in society. Like that tends to attract certainly if nothing else, like people that are a little bit more put together, like a little bit more self-sacrificing. Um, and like, like the program that I was in, like when I was doing SEAL training, like those are some of the best people I've ever met, like just awesome all around awesome people. But, um, in general, like it, it's kind of hard to find you, you, you encounter a lot of resistance because like everything that you're, that you believe and that you're saying is so antithetical to everything that you're surrounded by and consumed by. Right. And when you're captured by that system, um, it's kind of hard to imagine anything else. Uh, and you're very much mentally continually bombarded by this idea that, well, like, well, you probably wouldn't be able to succeed at anything else because the real world's really hard. But now that you're here, like we're going to look out for you. We're going to take care of you, right? This is that that false god mentality um, that like, well, we've we've already got this path laid out for you. And it's like, yeah, you could like deviate from this and go do something else, but that's not a good idea. You want to stay here, like where you're. And it'll, every year it'll get it gets a little bit better. You get a, paid a little bit more. You get treated a little bit better. You know, like nobody, fewer people are able to talk down to you. And like it just kind of progressively does. It's like a trap. It's like a um, a constrictor, like a big constrictor snake. That's just like slowly wrapping around you. And there's a certain point of no return, uh, in that system. Once you get captured by it, like you're in it for life. Um, and I did not get to that point, uh, but I came pretty close. Like I was kind of right on the cusp of was like where, okay, it, it either doesn't make sense to walk away from this, like at a certain point, uh, it, it makes sense to just like, Nope, this is my lot in life now. And I, I just work for the government for the rest of my life because, it starts to get so good uh, in terms of like the benefits and the pay and the, the job security. And it's like all of it, like no matter, even if it's stupid and you hate every second of it, you, you almost can't, you can never leave it. I mean, it's, it's just this trap. So in that sense, it was really hard. Uh, Hayek has a quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. And it's that um, men who are not confident that they can make their way by their own efforts 
Um, independence of mind and strength and character is rarely found among men who are not confident they can make their way by their own efforts. And I've seen it. I've lived it like that. That is if you break a person down mentally enough and convince them, like give them Stockholm syndrome and say like, yes, I am your captor, but I'm also your provider. You know, like if, if you escape from this prison, who would feed you? And you're like, you know what? You're right. Like where that makes it really difficult to have intellectually honest conversations. Anybody that's been captured by that beast, um, can't see the forest for the trees. So I wish I could say yes, but mostly no. Like I spent a lot of time just reading and keeping to myself really. And I mean, I would just try to be a good influence on people and, and try to bring glory to God and what I did and like be good at what I did. And people would be like, man, why, why do you put so much like passion and energy into the things that you do? Why do you do so many things? Right. Like that was certainly started more conversations than me being like, Hey, have you guys ever read Rothbard? You know what I mean? Just trying to be a standout example more than, um, start intellectual conversations tend to have tended to be more effective. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, and I can imagine similar to what we were saying before. I mean, those people that are experiencing, you know, quote unquote, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome, you know, it's hard. And you're the high quote, there is great, you know, great synopsis of this dynamic, but like people generally don't want to contradict their actions with their words. You know, so like if you're in a situation where you're being forced or you've accepted that you're you've acquiesced to acting a certain way, you know, I don't think you're you're I don't think you're very sensitive or you're very uh, motivated to engage in dialogue or discourse or education that directly contradicts the actions that you're taking, because then you mean at at a minimum, you feel like you're hypocritical to yourself. You know, you're 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 contradicting yourself in a certain sense. And so I can I think that's part of the reason why once you've accepted a, a fate of whatever kind, you rarely look outside at things that might contradict or provide a, a logical basis for contradicting the very thing that you, you've accepted to, you've acquiesced to doing. Um, and how did, where did, like, how did Bitcoin influence any of this journey? Um. It was, it was very much tangential to what I was going through, like already. Um, I was in the Middle East at the time. So like I, I was working a lot, but I also had like a lot of downtime where I didn't have much to focus on. What and were you doing in the Navy? Sorry to interrupt. I did a lot of Mind different up. things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's hard to fit into like a sentence. So I did a lot. I, I was, I did intelligence. I was a search and rescue swimmer. I was a on a vessel board and search and seizure team. I was, uh, I did ballistic missile defense. I did, I did and a lot did you of see stuff, active duty? ship navigation. Yeah. You know, I was active the entire seven years I was in active just means that like you're owned by the government in like a full-time capacity. Did you um, see com- combat in any of these roles? Only not like, not like in the sense where we were being shot at. No, but like in the sense where we were like in the Persian Gulf, and like shooting at someone else to be like, Hey, go away kind of right. thing, but never in like a, like a, Hey, I'm shooting at you Fire and you're shooting back of, situation. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, a lot There's of some... like non-compliant, not non-compliant, but like non-compliance, not the word, but like going, getting on a little boat and going and boarding another boat and knowing that they don't want you to be there kind of situations. There was a lot of gotcha. that. Like, gotcha. is this blow, boat going to blow up? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> kind of situations right. like that. 
Uh, sorry to interrupt. So you were saying how Bitcoin was tangential this entire oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so at the time, I was getting into p- trading penny stocks because when I would get home from work on the days that I like, could come home, the markets would open about the time that I'd get home, the US markets, because I was in the Middle East. So I just started teaching myself how to day trade. And I was like, man, I don't know anything about anything. Like, I don't know anything about finance or business or how any of this crap works. This was like 2016. So I was like, I need to start reading books. And this was right about the time that Trump got elected. I'd always been an avid reader, but I didn't ever read a ton of nonfiction. So I was like, this is right about the time Trump got elected. So I was buying a bunch of books from Amazon and I had Donald Trump's Make America Great Again book in my Amazon cart. And Amazon was like, hey, we see that you like this. You, might we suggest Ron Paul's and the Fed? And I was like, okay, sure. Why not? Smart people like Ron Paul. So I was like, I'll buy that. And uh, I read And the Fed by Ron Paul. And that was what really kicked me down the Austrian rabbit hole. And at the time, like cryptocurrencies were going crazy. And I was like, I should probably be buying Bitcoin. And I had had that thought for like a year like when I was just like, I just need to, I, uh, I couldn't get through the KYC on Coinbase or something like that. It was like backed up for like nine months or something. And then from there, like I went down the Austrian rabbit hole and it took me a little while to kind of circle back to Bitcoin. Cause at first I was like, Oh, crypto, crypto makes sense. And then I was like, wait, no, crypto doesn't make sense. Bitcoin, Bitcoin makes sense, but wait, Bitcoin solves all of those problems. Okay. Now I get it. That was what it was for me. It was like kind of kind of round like a roundabout path like come back yeah. to where i was and did it did it embolden you in any of the you know broader life decisions about how you're coping with being in a situation that's increasingly divergent from you know what your philosophy uh kind of dictates or like you know did it did it help you deal with manage extricate yourself from these totally situations? especially because you mentioned earlier you were like were you ever able to find like any kind of camaraderie like common intellectual ground. No. And that was partly why, like, that's where heavily armed clown came from was like out of that just pounding desire for some sort of intellectual common ground and outlet, like, and, and a a place to like vent my frustrations with um, in in an abstract way, right. Where I wasn't revealing too much detail, like a lot of hack, like heavily armed clown, a lot of like who hack is like not when I'm, when I'm talking about like hack and not just like me is, is like abstractly venting frustrations about like whatever it was that I was dealing with in the moment through like an Austrian lens. Um, mm-hmm. Like talking, like so many things that like I'm seemingly obsessed with in a moment for a moment over like the last five years was just because I was in a moment where I was like, I was living through that bureaucracy that I was reading about in Mises. And I was just angry tweeting about it or whatever, or like feeling like I have no control is like, why didn't nobody understand economics and be like, well, I'm just going to like make a meme so that they better. Like that was so much of, it was just my outlet. It was like, that was really where I found um, so much release was in Bitcoin, like intellectual release and, and probably like some mental and emotional um, release too. Yeah. I think many can appreciate or that resonates with a lot of people. I think a lot of us find that that's the case. Um, all right. So how did you, you got yourself out of the military earlier this year, right? Mm-hmm. And I, now you're working on an open source Bitcoin custody solution protocol service. Yep. How did you come to land on doing that and tell me all about it? Yeah. So 
from April 2021 to April of 2022, I did um, Lambda School. Well, now they're, they're formerly Lambda School, but now they're known as Bloom Tech. Uh, it's basically like a like a boot camp for computer programming. And I just did that for like a year in a part-time basis. So like while I was in the military, I was like just taking night classes to learn how to be a computer programmer because Bitcoin basically, Bitcoin um, and then like some of my like personal influences in life, like kind of led me to saying like, okay, you want to be successful in life, you need to learn a skill. And one of the best skills you can learn these days is to just be a software engineer. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And I just kind of dedicated myself to that. Um, I got out of the military and I spent a good couple of months, like really heavily job searching. I, I put out like hundreds of applications. Um, two months later, now I've been, I've been working on this open source project for two months. I'm still getting rejection emails from applications that I put out like, like two and a half to three months ago. It's that bad. I, I, I didn't get any job offers. Um, I'm just being honest. Like I did not get a single job offer from anybody. Uh, I applied like to all kinds of companies, like as me. And I also applied to like a bunch of like Bitcoin companies as heavily armed clown didn't get any, um, you know, some of those like made their ways to like interviews and stuff, but I never got any job offers. So I was like, okay, most of those companies aren't working on interesting things anyway. Um, I could go like continue pursuing. I could like dress my LinkedIn up a little bit and try to be a little bit more politically palatable for some of these people and just say the right things and whatever. And um, probably go get a fiat job, like building some, computer program for homeless hamsters or something. But um, I was like, I don't really want to do that. And I don't really have to do that. So what if I just like work on a really interesting problem in Bitcoin? I'm like, well, I'm, I'm kind of a junior engineer, so I'm not going to be like committing anything to like Bitcoin core, unless it's like simple documentation or something. And, and I still don't even understand lightning. Like how does lightning work? Nobody knows. Um, I'm just kidding. I know, I know lots of people know, but uh, it's beyond me. Like it's very enigmatic. So I'm like, I'm just going to like, I have this problem with, with in Bitcoin where I have friends that come to me and they're like, Hey, I finally bought some Bitcoin. What should I do with it? And I'm like, Oh, I, dude, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell them because I know what I do. And what I do is like, it's kind of complex and it involves multi-sig and it's certainly very intimidating to newbies and they want an easy answer. They're like, Hey, I heard I should get my keys off the exchange. I'm ready to do it. What do I do? And I'm like, I don't in good faith. I cannot ethically recommend them like an easy solution. I just can't do it. I can't be like, Oh, just get a good, get a treasure because I, I don't believe that that's a good option. Um, and I, and I'm like, well, I know that there's the right answer, but you're probably not going to do it because it's going to take you like 12 hours to set up or whatever. So I, I, I struggle with that problem and I have struggled with that problem and I continue to struggle with that problem. So I was like, I need to work on that because that is the biggest problem I have in Bitcoin, particularly when it comes to converting people is that I have no, nothing dependable to send them to where I can like know with certainty that they will be taken care of and like implement good practices and security and privacy. So that's really like where my focus is, is like, I can, I can solve that problem. I can work on that problem. I can make steps towards fixing that and and whatever i don't know i'll either learn along the way or like find people to help me so that's the the mission that i'm on i actually wrote an article about it it was called um uh my my journey as an open source software engineer or something like that um it's it's on my twitter just go look at my pin tweet and you scroll up and you'll see it an experiment in open source that's what it was called and so do you want to detail any of the aspects or characteristics of this project or would you rather not do that at this no, time? No, I, I can talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, it's very technically complex. Like there's a lot of 
a lot going on in it, but it's going to be designed in a way the front end is like almost finished. I would say it's like 90% finished. Um, and I'm designing it in such a way where it's like everything complex about it technically is, is abstracted behind like really smooth, slick, easy to use user interface. So I have started like from the ground up thinking about user experience. It's like, I want people to be able to just like click a button, have a screen pop up, click a button, have a screen pop up, click a button, have a screen pop up, click a button. Like so dumb, my grandma could do it. But to like set up phenomenally good Bitcoin security. That's what I want, like self-custody security. Uh, in so addition to that- A self-custody, a multi-sig self-custody solution mm -hmm. that anyone can use that emphasizes privacy, that doesn't have the data leak that some of the right. uh, like companies and stuff have. Exactly. And it's open source and it's it minimizes like dependencies. So you could like theoretically- we're not doing anything that like you can't do with just Bitcoin core and a little bit of knowledge. You know what I mean? It's like, we don't need our software to do it. It's our software just makes it easier. And then uh, also kind of trying to solve the problem of inheritance. So like, it's really hard with multi-sig, it's hard to make it private for one because you have to have descriptors with every single key. Uh, so if anybody finds one of your keys and they find a descriptor and now they know all your transaction history. And then it's also really hard to um, solve for inheritance with like good security with multi-sig because in order to have like an heir be able to like receive that money and meet a spending threshold, they have to have enough keys to be able to spend like at any given moment, or, you know, you have to trust a third party with a key in some way, shape or form, or like you're trusting that they will deliver it to the heir and then the heir will be able to meet the spending threshold. So that's a really hard problem. So um, kind of marrying multi-sig, um, encrypting everything so that like the uh we're basically going to be using blockstream pin servers to provide like to redundantly encrypt everything so every you'll have seven sd cards each sd card will be like its own operating system you'll plug it into any computer you want restart it and it'll automatically boot um into like this in ubuntu environment contained on the sd card each sd card has one privacy or one spending key uh, and it'll be like a bunch of wallets inside the application. So you open it up, you have like a two of seven account, a five of seven account, and like uh, a one of seven account. And those are all for like different amounts of money. So like highest security versus like medium security, low security. And uh, it's basically gonna be like a one-stop shop because it's going to decay over time. Uh, it's going to have like a shelf life. I, I think we're going to make it so you can kind of push the decay out into the future, but it's going to solve for that. So it's like, if you have an error, they only need to have one key and eventually they'll be able to access everything because it's going to eventually decay down and then encrypting all of it. So that if anybody finds any of it, like they don't know what anything is inside of it, but also using the Blockstream pin servers to allow you to decrypt it remotely. Uh, if you want, you just like ping the server over Tor, and then they send you back your decryption key. They don't know anything else about you. Like they just give you your password. Uh, they already use it for, uh, Blockstream already uses it for like pins for like jades or whatever. Um, so yeah, like kind of marrying like all these different existing Bitcoin technologies into like this really complete cohesive experience that takes anyone from zero to hero uh, in terms of like Bitcoin security and privacy for self-custody. That's my goal. Am ambitious. Yeah, it's it's a big project, um, and uh, the front end's almost done though, so definitely so making a lot of progress. You know, among having this ease of use and developing better solutions for things like inheritance and and having different security models for different use cases or different uh, amounts, let's say, you're also trying to address potential supply chain risks. You're also attempting to address 
uh, I think the necessity for seed storage as well. Right. Right. Yeah. You're not going to write anything down. Um, you're not going to write anything down. It's all going to be like very redundant and stored like digitally on an SD card. And then you'll have like a backup of each SD card on a CD and a backup on a DVD. So that's like package one. And that's like SD one, CD one, DVD one. And those are all stored in one place. And the reason that you're doing it electronically is because it's all encrypted, right? And because you have that redundancy of like those three different devices storing all the same information, you're not ever going to use the CDs unless you need to restore an SD card. Because SD cards are like little mini computers that when you stick it into your computer and reboot, it actually like boots into its own OS. So the CDs and DVDs are just like backups, um, but you don't want to write it down because either you have to get into a really complex cipher scheme of some kind, like where you're encrypting what you're writing down. And at that point it's kind of useless or you're um, encrypting everything and, and storing backups to the decryption behind the encryption. So in such a way where you either need to authenticate with the um, blind password server, or you have to get like four or five SD cards together and then that gives you like enough to decrypt everything, if that makes sense. Yeah, somewhat. But so will this be um, like, is there a business model around this ever? Or are you just looking to be funded as an open source developer? Or how, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so right now um, I've just been doing this and like people have been really generously donating money to me, which has just been amazing. Um, I'm sure a part of that is just like with the reputation that I built in Bitcoin and stuff like that. But I mean, I've had pretty tremendous success so far, like kind of crowdfunding my efforts. People have been really generous and awesome. Um, I've been like, I kind of set a goal for myself and it was like, Hey, you know, if I was working as a junior software engineer, I'd be making about this much is like, and I, this is like my monthly goal. You know, it's not extravagant. It's not pennies, but like, this is what I'm targeting. And I've pretty much met my goal for like the last two months. So that's just been awesome. Um, long-term it could definitely become a business. Um, the software is definitely going to be like free and open source, no matter what, that's like a pillar of the design, but somebody's got to run those blind password servers. Um, and they're really just going to be like nodes that are, you can hit over tour, just kind of like API nodes that you hit over tour. And, um, I think we're going to be able to offer like some other services through those blind password servers to kind of create an incentive, um, for people to run those and keep those online where they can actually get paid by offering like tertiary services, like, um, like the, the five of seven account, the high security is going to be time locked for four years. But if you want to access it early, you can pay one of the, the blind password server operators and they'll like release a key to you that allows you to spend from that account early. So, um, I think that there can like be a red hat business model kind of built around that, uh, where you like your, you have like a federation of blind password servers, kind of like the way Blockstream did with Liquid, where they have like a federated sidechain. This would be, it's not like a chain because there's no consensus, but it's just like uh, a federation of server operators who are like hand chosen by the organization and they're anonymous and they can get paid for, um, for running these things. And maybe there's like a cut taken by an organization or something, or maybe not, maybe it's just like a loose coalition of people. I don't know, but I definitely think that there's a profit incentive there um, down the line eventually if everything comes together and, and the design all works out and so when do you think people will be able to have a look and play around uh that's a hard question um they can definitely go play with the front end now uh the front end like i said is about 90 percent done and i would imagine in the next week or two i'm going to start taking steps to like really digging into getting the back end 
hooked up to like and like getting middleware built and stuff like that so that like it's actually an application that does something but right now you can play with all of the front end it just doesn't it's not hooked up to anything right, right so it's all right, just like right. dummy data but uh you can go clone that down on github if you feel so technically inclined and uh, do that play around with that nice. so i would say i would say it, it'll be at least i would say two or two months before i think before i have any kind of like fully working front end to back end prototype. Uh, but there's definitely like stuff to see now. Given that you're this far down this path now and recognizing the, you know, the path that led here and the, you know, not getting the other jobs that you had applied for and that kind of stuff. Are you happy that it worked out with this way that you're, you have a certain degree of autonomy. You're able to work on something that you think is super totally. necessary or meaningful. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't, it's, it's amazing. It's been so cool. It's been so fulfilling. <laughs> I don't have to go to any stupid, useless meetings. I work on solving problems all day. I've learned a lot already. Um, but it, you know, it requires me very much being very intentional with my time every day, mm. sitting down and being like, okay, I've got to work on this problem and like getting stuck and frustrated a lot. And like, just kind of, it, it's, uh, I'm sure it's not for everybody, but it's definitely been very awesome for me. That's awesome, dude. I'm extremely happy for you. And I'm excited to see uh, the fruits of your labor. I got another call in about 10 minutes. So any final things you wanted to get off your chest or any places you wanted to direct people? Uh, no, I don't think so. If they want to check out Arctica, they can just go see my pin tweet and you'll find it from there. Um, at, I'm at heavily armed clown on Twitter at heavily armed C, just the letter C. Um, that's about all I got though. But I mean, John, always a pleasure to talk to you, man. Like I love hanging out with you. Yeah, man. It's been way too long. I'm, I'm, I'm super pumped. We, we got to do this and we'll have to do another one before uh, a similarly long stretch again, or maybe I'll see you at uh, an upcoming conference. It'd be great to hang out again in person. Yeah, that would be cool. Sweet. All right, brother. Will you take care? Good luck with the work and uh, keep in touch. All right, man.